We're going to have a prayer, and then we'll begin. And uh, for those in Audioverse land, um, I'm glad that you are with us. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you will be our teacher. We need you to use your Bible to make clear to us what is right and true. And I ask that you will do this for your own sake and that you'd give us of your spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts 19. Acts 19. What we're talking about in this period are the sins of the world with particular focus on the sins of Australia, the islands of the world, Africa, and Europe. Now, when I planned to do this series originally, there would have been like eight or nine different lectures, one for each continent or subcontinent. So you know when you try to put this much together, you are really abbreviating things, right? Acts 19, and we are looking at verse 9. It says, But when diverse, that is, various persons, were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one at Tyrannus. There's a principle there that is very helpful for those that are in Europe and for some in Australia. And that is a principle to know when to separate from a congregation. Do you see in that verse when our apostles separated from the congregation? When did he do it? Was it when they didn't believe what he said? Acts 19, verse 9. It said when they were hardened and believed not, but that wasn't the only issue. What was the other one? And they began to spake evil before the multitude. That is, it became a public controversy over, I think you can see it. Let's say that we were a church right here, and I'll make myself the wicked one. And let's say that I'm preaching error, and when you get a chance to teach, you teach truth. I preach error, you teach truth, and people here are making decisions. But now let's say income visitors that uh, are not yet members of our church and are just learning, if you and I have any common sense and courtesy at all, we are going to be quiet in front of the visitors. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? We're not going to discuss these things in front of the visitors, these things that divide us. But what if I violate that common sense and I began to oppose the truth of God in front of visitors? Can you continue doing evangelism in this congregation? You know you really can't, because if you bring the people in, the, the work that you've been doing for months is going to be undone in just a few minutes, and that is a time to do what the apostle does here. What he does is he moves next door. Do you know that's what he does? The school of Tyrannus was next door. Uh, I don't mean it needs to be next door, but in this case, that's where it was. He separated. He didn't separate just because someone disagreed with him, just because there were personality differences. It wasn't just a theological issue. It had to do with an evangelism issue. It's when they were speaking evil before the multitude. So what are the classic sins of Europe? Do you know it was in Europe among the Germans 
that this concept called higher criticism was invented. It's an idea, it's a scientifically refined type of doubting. Uh, there is a place for doubt and skepticism when you're dealing with humans. And if you go back to the Middle Ages, you'll find uh, a couple men that worked together for some time, one of which was named Peter Abelard. Peter was a great developer of thought in the Middle Ages, and his great development really was that he began to test everything people said to see if it matched up with the facts, with reason, with data. That was Peter Abelard, and this was so such a revolutionary idea, not to just believe what the people had said before you, but Peter took this idea too far, and he treated the words of man the right way, you might say, with doubt, but then he did the same thing with the words of God. That is, he treated the words of God with the same type of skepticism that he did the words of men. And does it make good sense to you that you shouldn't do that? That uh, the words of God and the words of men are not the same? Europe has never fully escaped from that tendency. And in the Adventist church, there's some really bad history there centering around a man named Conradi that has left a distaste for the writings of Ellen White, a disbelief in the sanctuary message that has just slowed down the movement of the three angels' messages in Europe for now about 100 years. I'll try to illustrate for you that. In the island of Mindanao, just one of the larger islands in the Philippines, there are more Seventh-day Adventists than in the entire continent of Europe. And in the one nation of Romania in Europe, or on the edge of Europe, you might say, but I'll say in Europe, in that one nation where communism was controlling for so long and persecution was strong, when communism fell, there were nearly as many Adventists in that one nation as in the rest of the westernized free Europe combined. What I'm trying to illustrate for you is what skepticism and doubt does for the church in terms of prosperity and growth. It stunts it, it slows it, and uh, we're going to look at a few verses about unbelief. Turn in your Bibles to Mark 13. Mark 13, and we're looking at 50, verse 58. Someone who's listening might want to ask me, why should you not doubt what God says? Do you mean you just blindly believe anything that God says? And my short answer to that would be, I can't deal with that in this talk, but if you would look at predictive prophecy, you would find abundant evidence that God knows well, that he knows the future and is infinitely intelligent. And then if you look at the character of Jesus, you find abundant evidence that he is, has the character to manage that kind of knowledge. So my taking God at his word is based on evidence, not on a blindness to the data. It's because of the data that I trust him, not because I ignore the data. That is, we, God has never asked us to have a blind faith. He's asked us to have an intelligent one. You're in Mark 13, verse 58. 
whoops, 13. Whoop, let me drop this. 1358. There's no such thing, huh? You're right. Well, let me tell you what it's. Oh, it's Matthew. I told you I did that, didn't I? Yeah, I told you. All right. Matthew 13, verse 58. That also is partly the result of poor handwriting skills. And those of you who are students, take note and learn while you can. Those of you who are teachers, do your best with those kids. Verse 58 says, And he did not many mighty works there because of their... Now think that through for a minute. Do you see there that unbelief produces itself? That is, if unbelief is expecting to see a miracle as a means of being corrected, yet what does, what's the effect of unbelief? Not many mighty works are done in an area where unbelief is. And uh, this, in my mind, accounts somewhat for the difference you see between, for example, demonic activity uh, between North America and Europe on one hand and Africa and India on the other. Uh, when I was at Mountain View College here about a week ago, uh, I was talking to a student who talked about how they've had a number of weeks of prayer and revivals in the last few years, and almost every single one of them, some student would become possessed during the meeting and would begin to fall over and do or do strange things. But the chance of that happening right here in this room is low. Why? Does the devil have a different character in these places? No, but the devil has a different aim. In places where everyone believes in God, the devil would like to have people have a bad idea of his character, to scare people and to pervert the idea of what God is like. But even better than that for Satan is unbelief in God's existence. And there's nothing like supernatural activity to destroy skepticism at its root. In other words, it's better for the devil where, there, where there's a lot of atheism and skepticism to hang low. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? Yeah, it does. So both the devil and even the Lord Jesus, where there is much unbelief, Jesus could not do many mighty works there. Chapter 17, verse 20. Two pages over. Matthew 17, verse 20. So here is the man who comes to Jesus. This is just after the transfiguration. And this man has come for healing for his son. Why could we not cast him out? The disciples are asking Jesus. Verse 20. And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible unto you. If there is any gospel in dealing with the sin of unbelief that you find in Europe and the West, not just in Europe, but also in academic circles generally, that is, when you go to the graduate level and even undergrad in some places, but the graduate level education around the world, 
has been infused with this same philosophy that has be, began over there in Germany. In fact, many times they even learn these languages so they can read this philosophy in its native tongue. It's this philosophy of doubt. What's the gospel message about it? It's that when this same man came to Jesus and said a similar thing, he said, help my unbelief, Jesus healed his son. He said, I believe, help mine unbelief. Jesus will do that. Jesus will take a man who has a mixture of faith and unbelief, but is willing to move forward with the faith that he has and wants to depend and feels helpless to rid himself of his skepticism. That man can come to Jesus just as he is, and Jesus will begin to reveal to him evidence on which to base his confidence. And uh, the problem with unbelief is that it grows very naturally in the soil of our hearts so that you can uproot it today and find it flourishing next week. Uh, this business of being believing is work. In fact, Jesus even talked this way. Have you read where he said this, that the work of God is to believe on Jesus whom he has sent? This is it. We are to be uprooting unbelief from our life. This time I really do mean Mark. Uh, oh, we just, I just referred to it, though. It's Mark 9.24, if you want to write it down. But that is the place where the man said, I believe, help mine unbelief. Turning your Bibles to Romans 11. Romans 11, and looking at verse 23. Verse 22 is a verse that possibly Brother uh, Wolberg will share in his series on the character of God. At least it seems to me like it fits in with that topic. Let's read verse 22. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Is there a place to think about God's severity? There is. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And the gospel, and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be graft in. For God is able to graft them in again. When you heard Brother Wolford's testimony this morning, it was a fulfillment of this verse. Because Brother Wolford, for example, is a Jew. And he was a Jew that believed, and then a Jew that didn't believe. And uh, was God able to graft him back in again? And what was the condition of being grafted back in again? Not abiding in unbelief. So we're almost done with this part of the thought. If the great sin of Europe includes sinful unbelief, that is, doubting in the face of evidence, yet there's hope for those who are willing to cry out to God, to look for the evidence. They don't have to abide in that dark hole that they're in. Another sin that characterizes Europe and, in fact, exists quite plainly in Australia and is uh, not unknown in intern Latin America. It used to be a serious problem here in North America when Ellen White was alive, but she fought it so, with so much energy here 
that it actually beat it down in the church. I'm speaking about that what Ellen White calls kingly authority. Kingly authority. Let's look at a verse on it, and then I'll try to help you understand it. Look at First uh, Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five, verse one. The elders, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, listen carefully, not by, what's the word? Constraint or compulsion or force, but willingly, not for filthy money, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but in samples to the flock. You know the Bible never gives me authority as an elder to tell you what to do. I'm an elder in my local church in Arkansas, uh, and that gives me some responsibilities. It means I am to teach well and to guard the flock if I can from error and to meet with them and talk to them and try to save them from falling into sin. I have authority to teach and to help, but I do not have authority to command. If one of them decides that he's going to start a ministry, and I think that ministry is a bad one or poorly timed, I have authority to teach, I have authority to counsel, but I don't have authority to forbid. God has never given that kind of authority to men. So what did we just read here in 1 Peter 5? Should I take the oversight? I should take it, but I shouldn't be controlling by compulsion, not by demanding, not as though I'm a Lord, but how might I lead the flock? What was the suggestion in verse 3? By example, I can teach and demonstrate, and this is the extent of my personal authority. That's not just true for local elders. That's true for pastors, conference administrators, union administrators, division administrators. God has never invested to the church the authority to forbid. Let me not address this quite yet, because God certainly has invested parents with some authority to forbid. Not that my mom now in her 70s has authority to forbid me to go on a mission trip, but when I was four, she had authority to forbid me to do almost anything she wanted. But it's a different topic, and I'll never even finish this one, so let's just not go there quite now. But maybe the contrast is important. God has never given the church the kind of parental authority over thinking adults that God has given parents over children who are in their minority. And this contrast of government is one that people ought to understand. Uh, so that God never intended that a, I think I've said this thought already, but I'll just move it all the way up to a division president for extreme illustration. If the division president says that you may not start your vegetarian restaurant well, you can pray for wisdom to know what to say back, but he doesn't have any authority for that. The church hasn't given it to him, and the Bible hasn't given it to him. He only imagines that he has it. And uh, you, he has authority to teach and authority to counsel, 
and you have responsibility to respect and to love. But there's nowhere there an authority to forbid. Do you remember some people who misunderstood this? I'm thinking of James and John. They saw some people casting out demons. And those people were not part of the central organization that was surrounding Jesus and taking orders from him. And James and John saw that they weren't just casting out demons. The worst of it was they were doing it in the name of Jesus. Do you remember this in the New Testament? And that felt like a real breach of protocol, and it could lead to confusion. People might think that they're some of the disciples when they're not. And what did James and John do? First, what did they do before they told Jesus? They told him to quit. That's what they did. They said, don't do that in the name of our Lord. And then they felt kind of funny about it, and they came to bounce the idea off Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Forbid them not. The people who are not against us are on our side. Now, you had a similar thing happen thousands of years before that in the case of Moses. Moses prayed, and God sent his spirit on 70 elders, and Moses asked those elders to come up to meet him. Well, 68 of them came up, but Eldad and Medad didn't come up. And the 68 that came up, the spirit was poured out on them, and they began to prophesy in the camp. Joshua went back to find the two renegades and found out the spirit had been poured out on them too. They were prophesying right down there in the camp. And Joshua was very concerned. And uh, he came up to Moses and said, Moses, forbid them. Have, you ever, have any of you read this story in the last three or four years? <laughs> it's in there. Moses, forbid them. And Moses said, Joshua, are you jealous on my account? In other words, Joshua, do you feel like that I have a power trip and I need everyone to answer to me? Listen, I'm perfectly content to have everyone answer directly to God. Um, I am willing to guide. I will teach. I'll be an example. But I would be happy if everyone was a, what do you say? If everyone was a prophet, it would be just fine with me. This is the right authority for a man of God. An authority to teach. I have authority to teach, authority to counsel. I even have authority to call the church together, and the church has authority that I don't have. Do you know that? The local congregation, can I disfellowship a man? I can't do it, but can the local congregation disfellowship a man? God has invested in the congregation authority that he's never put in me. And he's invested authority in the constituency of a conference that he's never put in the administrators of the conference. And authority in the worldwide church of Seventh-day Adventists that he's never put in the president of this church. The, the men have, a, I think I've said this 10 times already, I should just quit and go on to something else. But has it sunk in? And this thought is not well understood in Europe, Australia, and even many cases in Central and South America where there are not sufficient self-supporting institutions for people to see how it's possible to work together without an administrative connection at the top. Let's go to uh, Australia and the islands for a minute. One, it's interesting, uh, Ellen White quoted Mark Twain once. It wasn't like Ellen White to quote Mark Twain. They're not the same kind of authors. And they didn't have similar uh, goals or anything. 
but she was in Australia, and she heard people talking about Mark Twain. He had visited, and she does, do you remember what she says about Australia? She quotes Mark Twain, where Mark Twain said, in Australia, every day is a holiday, and when there is not a holiday, there is a horse race, which was just Mark Twain's exaggerating way of saying that the Australians love to have fun. They love parties, they love fun, they love games, they love excitement. I don't want to tell you that it is a sin to enjoy pleasure. In fact, David said that at thy right hand are pleasures for evermore. God, and in fact, we were created for the pleasure of King Jesus. He enjoys us. It's not that pleasure is a wicked thing. But the love of pleasure is what is very dangerous. It's similar in characteristic to the difference between the love of money and money. That many godly people have had wealth, but they couldn't be godly and love money at the same time. And many godly people enjoy the pleasures that God gives them. But when the Bible talks about lovers of pleasure, it uses a ratio. And those that are condemned are the ones where it says, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It's a grave danger to be a lover of pleasure in such a way that the effort and time and devotion that you give to your pleasure exceeds the effort and time that you give to your service of the Lord. So that if in the scales of the sanctuary, it was weighed on, on this side, the amount of time you put into seeking after enjoyment and excitement and pleasure and, ex and the satisfaction of this type, hours, money, attention, if it was compared to the hours, time, and attention you give to soul winning and Bible study, if that side is comparable or larger than this side, then that's exactly what the New Testament is talking to when it condemns a class. And it says that they are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. We'll look at a few more passages on this business of pleasure. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 5. James 5. I think you're already only three pages from it. 5 and verse 5. This is speaking to the rich men. It says, you have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. James is illustrating something for the wealthy here. And that is that this is not our home. And when you treat this place as your home, so that what you're seeking to do here is make your life more pleasurable, more comfortable, more, as it were, well, you know, your home. That it's almost like feeding a cow too much food. Why would you feed the cow too much food? Because you're not going to keep him much longer. What is his destiny? That's it. What you're trying to do is turn grain into money by processing it through the cow's gut, right? And so you're overfeeding him. This is the way that James illustrates people who have money and are using it for their pleasure. 
I can think of all kinds of practical ways of illustrating this sin. I'll try to illustrate it on the soft end, and you can make the hard applications. Uh, Ellen White, for example, writes to call porters and says that as call porters, you may be compelled to travel from place to place. That uh, she says, when possible, you ought to seek lodging with private individuals and so that you don't, aren't compelled to spend money on a hotel and uh, to get your food at the restaurants. But I know workers who specifically choose hotels and restaurants, the expensive fare and the luxurious living, because they enjoy it. When the work of God could be saved, that kind of money, by just a little bit of work. That's the soft end. But you know that that soft end can be stretched much further. I was, no one's ever going to invite me over to their house again if I say what I'm thinking right now. But I was in a million-dollar home. Here in California, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, a house this size could be a million-dollar house. But where I'm from in Arkansas, a million-dollar house is a really big thing. You know, it's a big, it's a big thing. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it was a, a million-dollar home. And you could just see how much effort was put into making it luxurious and comfortable. And as I stayed there for some time with those people, I could just see their minds were on, on pleasure, on what could they do for diversion, what could they do for fun, what could they do for, and I, I just fear for those who are seeking this direction, how it's going to feel in the judgment. One more example, and I'll move off it. You know, every year we lose a few zealous Adventists who go as student missionaries, and then their heart is broken as they associate with other student missionaries in the islands. Every year we sacrifice student missionaries to the pleasure-seeking uh, habits of others. And it is a common sin in our student missionary activities that our student missionaries and even adult missionaries choose as their mission some island where they can get plenty of beach and surf time. So that what they're really aiming for is to maybe teach a few hours a day and to enjoy their student missionary life. There is no reward in heaven for a self-serving mission. There's no reward for this kind of thing. I'm not saying that you can't be a missionary on an island that has a beach. But if you're a missionary there, the beach is not your mission. <laughs> Do you understand what I mean? This love of pleasure does not pass muster in the judgment. And being a missionary won't get you to heaven if while you are in your mission service, you're where was I? I was just hearing a story on this recently about a man that was in Guam as a student there. I don't think it was here at this place. Anyway, he was a missionary in Guam, and he was so excited to work with Adventists. And then the missionaries that were there were inviting him 
to their socials, but their socials were places where they'd watch movies and eat. And he didn't believe in watching movies, and he resisted going, and he didn't go. And then one time he did go, and he regretted it for a long time afterwards and felt terrible about it. And it just led him into a despair. Now I remember where I heard it. It was the man I was talking to in Wichita this week. Yeah, the love of pleasure is a sin. Not the enjoyment of pleasure, but the love of pleasure more than the love of God. In Australia, you have another issue that's worth considering. Turn in your Bibles to Acts, excuse me, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. I think that's only back a few pages from where we are right now. Hebrews chapter, I said 13, but this is really in chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we need to start in verse 2 and 3, and then move down. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's skip the precious material after that to verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Now skip precious material all the way down to verse 15. Looking diligently. Looking at what diligently? That would be at Jesus, right? We just looked at that in verse 2 and 3. Considering Jesus with diligence, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. What has happened in Australia, and it has its parallels even here in California, is that error developed quite a foothold because of the teaching of Desmond Ford. But you know when Desmond Ford left Australia, he came to teach just a short distance from here. Wasn't he teaching at PUC? I think that's where, that's where he was doing it. And uh, the effect of this teaching wasn't just to deceive people, it only deceived some people. But the people who weren't deceived were extremely distressed by it, and you ended up with a polarization. Now, I'm not speaking right now about the sins of those that were deceived, uh, those that ended up in skepticism or unbelief. Maybe I addressed that earlier. But there is a danger on the other side, and it has to do with bitterness. When you or I are involved in a controversy with those who believe error, there is a grave danger of our own spirit losing its hold on the Lord Jesus. To hold on to our position on truth is not all that is required. We have to look diligently lest any root of, what was the word? Any root of bitterness spring up. Because when bitterness springs up, it's usually not just an individual loss. What does the verse say? And thereby many be defiled. That's the effect of bitterness. Bitterness can destroy entire bodies of believers. So in Australia, you end up, just a minute, brother. In Australia, you end up with this problem. And it's, it was worse even 15 years ago than it is today of entire groups of people who, while they're standing on the position of truth, 
their own characters and the way that they relate to their brethren have soured. And that is a sin. We are commanded to look diligently that our own characters, what does it say in Galatians 6? It's verse 1. It says, if a brethren be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of, do you know the next word? It says meekness, considering yourself, lest thou also be tempted. That's the thing. So Matthew 24 talks about the same idea. It says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. It isn't just that those who are doing wickedness lose their love. It's those that are opposing wickedness are in serious danger of losing their love. It's because wickedness is abounding that the love of many is growing cold, but it's he whose love, I'm paraphrasing, endures unto the end. That's the one that makes it. Bitterness is a sin. Now, Brother Jilks, you wanted to say or ask something. All right, well, there's more than one, and so I'm thinking about how long an answer to give to this. But let's say by the end of the story, he didn't believe in the 1844 judgment or the high priestly ministry of Christ since that time, or that Ellen White was reliable in her teachings, of course, on that topic in particular, or that sanctification and justification go together in the plan of salvation, and once you start on those platforms, you can make a lot of progress into some other strange developments. But yeah, that's uh, the summary. I'm glad that was the question because I knew the answer to it. Many times people ask me questions. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And um, I'm relieved. So now I want to talk for a minute about the Sins of Africa. I should tell you, when I talk about the sins of Africa, it's not quite the same as when I talk about the sins of Australia or Central America or the Philippines or China or, you know, I've been and Heidi's been to these other places, but neither one of us has ever been to Africa. So I'm talking on the basis of rumor and reading. So I'm just telling you that so, <clears throat> so you can treat it with a little bit less authority. Does this make any sense to <laughs> you what I'm saying? <laughs> in December, we're going to South Africa and then a little bit later to Botswana on the same trip. And then that will be, yeah, I won't say that anymore after that point. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 15. For without are dogs and sorcerers and that fancy word there, we would call them prostitutes and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. 
lying and theft and the perversion of justice. You know, there are organizations that keep track of corruption, political corruption, and African nations and India are always high in the scale of political corruption. They're always right up there. To lie is to put yourself outside of the city of God. To choose to tell a falsehood, I'm of course not saying that you can't be forgiven. I think we've brought up with most of our sins that there's a gospel for those who lie. I think Peter himself lied on the night that he denied the Lord Jesus. Weren't those base lies when he said, I do not know the man? Those were lies of the most simple character, and he has been pardoned for those things. But when you seek pardon for a lie, if your lie has done damage, you need to do what you can to make it right. And this is what prevents many people from repenting of their lies and their corruption, the receiving of bribes. We'll look at some passages about bribes here in just a minute. I'm thinking about what's a talk I had with someone about India. He told me that when I'm there, I'm, I'll be going there every year because Amazing Facts has a school there now that's starting in July, just this coming month. And uh, that school I'll be teaching there. I was warned that when I talk to in people of India, that they will tell me what they believe I want to hear, whether or not it's so. Asian, it's wicked. I mean, lies are lies, no matter how much your society smiles on them or thinks that it's not a problem. And this idea that there are small lies and big lies, which is really caught on. My wife even told me about her childhood where she wasn't, had no idea until she was older that there was anything wrong with a white lie. It didn't feel like a moral disaster, but are white lies moral disasters? They don't even exist. I mean, a lie isn't white. You know, you know what I'm saying in terms of, if we're talking about moral rectitude, there's no such thing as a lie that is morally acceptable. Loves and makes a lie. I can think of two times in the last 12 years where under the pressure of the moment and the circumstance, I have said something that I knew wasn't so. And wow, did my conscience smite me. One of the times was to a police officer. He pulled me over, and my driver's license was not the state that I was in, but I had moved to the state I was in, and he asked me how long I'd been living in the state. And while what I said had some technical truth to it, it was about how much I was traveling, it definitely communicated a lie about how long it had been since I had begun residing in the state. 
probably as a basis of that lie, I did not get a ticket. How do I make that right? Do you know the Bible has a solution for making things right when you cannot make it right to the person you did wrong to? They used to call it a trespass offering. Maybe you've never even heard the term of a trespass offering. But the Old Testament outlines this idea. For example, if you steal from a man and then he dies and leaves no heir, who do you pay back? The answer is the treasury of the Lord. The trespass offering is a recognition that every sin against a man is a sin against the Lord. And if you cannot pay the Lord back through the agency which you did him wrong, you can pay him back directly, which is the right thing to do. So let's switch to the bribery issue because it goes so much with the line. You probably, do you see the integral connection between lies and bribes? In fact, very often bribes are bribes to get you to lie, for example. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 3. It's speaking about Samuel. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre. We've seen this word before. What does it mean? Money, profit. And took, what's it say? Bribes and perverted judgment. The Bible, in the first five books of the Bible, gives such strong counsel against this idea. God is looking for people who, if you hand a bribe to them, you put it in their hand, perhaps they don't know it's a bribe, you give it to them, they have it, and now you tell them that it's a bribe. Isaiah uses, it says they shake their hands from holding a bribe. Those are the people God is looking for. Those who don't play with it, don't consider it, would not allow, in my union, that's the Southwestern Union, we just lost our union president and a conference president over corruption. I think that if you could see behind the scenes everywhere, you would find that a lot of people who are in fact involved in corruption don't view it as corruption. It doesn't seem to them to be a sin. Let me describe for you a scenario that would like be repeated hundreds of times. Suppose that you are on the building fund committee for your local church and you're going to hire someone to put in a new sidewalk and door for access for handicapped people. And you have a friend who does that kind of business. And you know that uh, you could get bids and see who would do it for less. But uh, you know that if you give him the job, that he might give you $100 back for doing it, and he'll do a good job. And so you suggest we give the job to him. And he, in his gratitude, gives you $100 for the favor. That's theft. That $100 is a discount on the labor 
not paid to the church who's doing the work, who's paying for the work, but paid to you instead. It's theft. And by not involving the process correctly to find out who should do the work, other people who might have done the work for less or done it better, others are robbed of their opportunity. In short, this is the nature of corruption. Corruption has taken advantage of your position to give favors that may not be in the very best interest of the institution that you work for. The Bible condemns it. And yet, as a church, we have many regions of our world that are still today called missions. The reason that they're called missions is because they cannot run their own finances. The reason they can't run their own finances, listen carefully to this, any church in the world, no matter how poor it is, if the people pay an honest tithe, then where you have 20 believers paying tithe, you're going to have enough income to pay a pastor as much as any one of those people typically earns. We wouldn't need to have any missions where we have thousands of Adventists. But what we have in many of these places is when $100 goes in the offering plate, only 60 of it goes where it's intended. And where, because of favors and agreements, where there might be money to hire five ministers at an average wage, we hire one minister at an exaggerated wage. And, uh, and so he might have to deal with 80 or 90 churches. But can he deal with 80 or 90 churches? It might not be his fault that he gets 80 or 90 churches. It might be because of the same arrangement made with somebody else. But what we're talking about now is the sin of many of these places. And what is that sin? It's the sin of taking bribes and corruption, lying and theft, perverting justice. And no matter how spiritual people may be, it won't pass in the judgment. It won't be. Now I can see I'm putting five of you to sleep. And, uh, and that's not kind of the ones who are good at hiding that. And, um, but we're almost done. So let me review, and we will be finished with this. Yes, ma'am. I understand your question, so let me just answer it. So for those in audio verse, someone has asked, what about the liar Rahab, who, if we go further, will even say she was a whore, right? Uh, she had serious moral problems. God, in his graciousness and kindness, in fact, we saw this this morning, that God makes a distinction between those who are called brothers and those who are not. Should we associate with fornicators and covetous people who are outside of the fold? We can do that, can't we? At both, in the process of bringing them into the fold, there is a process when they're going through what you would call conversion. And in this process, is it possible they will still be covetous liars and fornicators? You might even be giving Bible studies to a couple that are living together, and they're probably having sexual relations every night, and you're having studies with them. Is it possible that they're learning spiritual things? It is. But before the process is done, they're going to have to get married, right? Yeah, and I think I'm telling you about Rahab. 
she lied, she was an idolater in all likelihood, she was a whore with certitude, but she couldn't remain those things. And when she's commended in Hebrews 11, she is not commended for anything she did wrong, she's commended for her faith. And uh, yeah, that's true. Let me review briefly and then close, and I'll start this next talk a little bit late. The sins that society smiles on because of their prevalence, heaven doesn't smile on for any similar reason. The love of pleasure is not considered a sin in this country. It's not considered a sin in Australia. It's not considered a sin really anywhere. Covetousness is not considered a sin here. And we can look on that and, uh, and feel however we feel about it, but it's a sin in the light of heaven. Go over to some other places, and there it might not be considered theft if you take part of the offering to use for really needy family members who are suffering hunger. It might not be considered theft if you're doing something really good with the money. That's what someone explained to me about the people in Fiji, that they don't feel like what they're doing is really bad because they're using the money for really needy people. But listen, he that is unfaithful in that which is least will be unfaithful in that which is much. And God tests even the very poor people with their very least. He'll even say to those that have only two cloaks that they ought to give one to someone that has none. That is, God's requirement to be generous and to, be, to have integrity is not requirement on the rich alone. It is a requirement even for the very poorest people among us. But then we talked about the sin that rises higher with rank. That's the sin of kingly authority. It's a sin that destroys the church's dependence on God. It reduces their ability to think for themselves and to live by faith. And God has done what he can to destroy that, that tumor in the church. What he's done is helped us here in North America. But use your influence and spread the word. Men don't seem to know what church authority involves. And what does it not involve? They don't have authority to command, to force, to compel. What, do, what authority do we have? Do I have? authority to teach and to demonstrate I can be an example that is the limit of what I have to do whatever sins there are in the world Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world let's kneel for prayer our Father in heaven I thank you that you have power that is needed to set things in order I'm sorry that we have found so many ways to justify our sin. And I ask that you would condemn it so that you can free us from it. That you would lead us to your son. We depend on him to take away our sin. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.